This is a fascinating section of scripture that we're going to be in uh, tonight. We're going to be looking at the feasts that God gave to the children of Israel and how they're fulfilled in Christ. Also, these feasts, I believe, do have a prophetic element. As you look, some of the feasts have been fulfilled by the person and work of Christ, and some of the feasts seem to be yet future. So there's so much for us to learn in uh, these feasts. And God's word is so layered, it's so detailed that God would give these feasts and they would point to his son. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. They don't realize that they're talking with Christ. And it says that he went through the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It says, this is where it speaks of me. That's a Bible study I wish we had. That's a conversation I'm looking forward to having with Christ, of of Christ going with me through the Old Testament scripture saying, right here, this points of me. Right here, this points of me. When you read the scriptures, don't think that the message of Christ begins in Matthew 1. All of the scriptures reveal Christ to us. So we're looking for Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. It's been said in the New Testament, we have principles, but the Old Testament, we have pictures. And a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? And the picture really drives it home. And we have some wonderful pictures of Christ in these feasts. Before we get to the feasts, we see uh, some of the requirements that are given to the priests in chapter 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel. And they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Say to them, whoever of all of your your descendants throughout your generations, whom goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicated to the Lord, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. So God here is calling for a reverence to the instruments that are in the tabernacle, saying these are set apart, these, these are holy, you're not to touch them when you're unclean. If you do, then you're cut off from the children of Israel. And I do believe this points to us as believers in the New Testament. There's many places in the New Testament where God calls us to be holy vessels unto the Lord, that God has sanctified us for, for a purpose. As they would go into the tabernacle, Aaron and his descendants, God says, I want this to be special. These instruments that are being used in worship to me, this is to be different than your fork that you use at home. This is different than your spoon that you down some Cheerios with. God wanted them to stop and go, okay, we're entering into worship. To be able to distinguish between what's holy and what's unholy. And God desires that our lives would be set apart as well for his, his purposes. In verse 4, Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has discharged shall not eat the holy offerings until he's clean. So they're not to partake in the offerings when they're unclean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has had an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean, or any person by whom he would be made unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat the holy things because it is his food." Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat to defile himself with it. I am the Lord. This adds depth to the reality of Christ making us clean. When we think about that they couldn't even eat the holy offerings when they were unclean, for us to be able to come into the presence of the living God, the holy of holies, speaks to the magnitude of Christ and his forgiveness and for us to be robed in Christ's righteousness to where God welcomes us into his presence. When we're declared righteous, we're robed in Christ's righteousness and welcome to spend time with the Lord. In verse nine, they shall therefore keep my ordinances lest they bear sin for it and die thereby if they profane it. I, the Lord, sanctify them. Throughout Leviticus, we see this phrase, I, the Lord, sanctify them. 
It's God who does that sanctifying work in our lives to set us apart, to make us more, more like Christ. In Philippians, we're told in chapter one that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God's committed to your holiness. God's committing to us being conformed into the image of Jesus, and he has a way of sanctifying us, especially if we're willing, especially if we surrender to that sanctifying work that he does in our, our lives. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she shall not eat of the holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced or has no children and has returned to his father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. So, so the priest had no inheritance in the land, didn't have a farm, would live off of these offerings that were offered to the Lord. Portion go to the Lord, portion go to the priests. And so this was the requirement to be able to eat of these offerings. Again, the idea is the offerings are set apart. It gives the value of, of worship. And if a man eats a holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. So if you accidentally ate of a, a holy offering, you went over to your friend's house who's a Levi, and you opened up his fridge, and you pulled out some steak, and you realized, oh my goodness, this is one of the holy offerings. I should have checked first. And you could make it up, and you restore a holy offering to the priest and add 20%, add, add one-fifth. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the ch children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of the trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I'm the Lord, sanctify them. Again, we have this phrase, I the Lord and the one who sanctify them. Offerings that are accepted and rejected. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel, or the strangers in Israel, who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows, or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will, with a male without blemish, from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats." So two things about the offering. If you are an Israelite and you wanted to worship the Lord through offering, is it should be free will. There's an aspect of worship where God desires it to be free will. He desires for us to choose to worship him, to choose to spend time with him, to choose to honor him with the possessions that he's in, entrusted uh, to us. And that's what the Lord desires as well. He doesn't want you to feel forced to pursue a relationship or someone else to pursue that relationship for you. But wherever there's love, there's that opportunity to have free will and have choice. Then also in worship, that they were to offer cattle that was without blemish. Now obviously, if you've got cattle that has a blemish, it's not going to be worth near as much. It's the cattle that was without blemish that's more valuable. So God's saying, don't give me your leftovers. If you're an Israelite, it would be easy to go, okay, here we have a calf that is maimed or, or blemished. We'll, we'll offer that one to the Lord, you know, and we'll keep the best for ourselves so our herd is as strong as, as possible. And the Lord's honored when we give him our best, when we offer to him the, the best of our time, the best of our talents, the the best of our financial resources. If you had a guest over, would you feed him leftovers? Maybe a guest that you're really comfortable with. Like if my brother came over, I'd be like, hey, we got some leftovers, right? It's my brother. It's family. And there's something cool about that. It's kind of cool when you're close enough to somebody where they offer leftovers. But if they're not family or and they're not a close friend and, and you invite them over, you, probably not going to offer them leftovers. You're, you're probably going to cook something fresh and, you know, flex a little bit, you know, try to impress a little bit and say, man, we, we really want to 
extend a, a good meal uh, to them. So, so how much more so with the Lord? You know, where we want to offer our best unto the Lord. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be accepted on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord, either a bull or a lamb that has any limp too, limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering, but for a vow offering it shall not be accepted. So the same principle of offering our best unto the Lord. And this thought continues in verse 24. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make an offering of them in your land, nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. Interesting here, God's saying, don't send a foreigner to go offer your sacrifice unto the Lord because this foreigner is corrupt. This foreigner doesn't have a relationship with God, doesn't know the one true uh, living God. Now, God's heart would be that they would come to know the one true living God, but saying, you go and offer this by your, your own hand. A good way to apply this when you think about, well, how do I offer my best to the Lord is what's the best time of your day? Are you a morning person? And that's when you're at your best. I'm most alert in the morning. Like I wake up and my mind's just going on all cylinders. I'm generally ready to go for a walk. And I'm like, yes, I'm alive. By about 10 at night, I'm a zombie apocalypse to the world. I'm a completely different person. Like, man, it is getting late. I had to pick up Addie at 11 o'clock at night the other night. And I'm like, so late. I don't know if I'm going to make it till 11 o'clock at night, right? So I do some reading when I'm going to bed, but I got to be honest with you, when I'm reading the scriptures or reading a book or reading a, a, a devotional late in the evening, I get a fraction out of it that I get in the morning. But Amber, my wife, she's the exact opposite. When it's nighttime, like she's starting to fire on all cylinders and she wants to talk crazy, you know? So, but in the morning, that's her zombie time. That's like, leave me alone. I need lots of coffee. So she does her time with the Lord and the Word at night. And, and she'll read some in the morning, but it's really her time at night that is her time. So what, what's the best time of your day? Maybe for you, you're like, man, I'm a good lunchtime person. I've never heard of that, but we'll just go with that. You're, you're a good lunchtime person is then take that time to meet with the Lord. We, we want to offer the best of our day to the Lord, and then it affects the, the rest of, of the day. In verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day, and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it's a cow or you, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. And when you offer sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten, you shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord. So this emphasis of, of God having that place of being our Lord and he being the one who, who sanctifies us. Now we get into the feasts in uh, chapter 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations these are my feasts. So God gives these feasts to the nation of Israel. In the book of Colossians, it tells us 
Don't let anyone judge you by feasts or Sabbaths or by food because they're a shadow that points to Christ. So all of these feasts point to Christ. The Sabbath points to Christ. As New Covenant believers, we're not required to celebrate these feasts in this way, as a law in the way that it was given to the children of Israel. So there's freedom here to, to celebrate the feasts. I think you'll, you'll find real joy in the Lord if you felt led to celebrate Passover, for instance, with the understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. Now, do you, do you have to do it in the month of Nisan, and do you have to do it on the 14th day, and is, is God commanding us to hold to it in that religious uh, sense that the nation of Israel was required to? No, but there's freedom in the Lord to celebrate it and especially understand the meaning that there is in, in Christ. I love studying these feasts because it really does point to Jesus in a, in a powerful way. Before the specific feasts, there's the foundation of the Sabbath, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a, is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your, your dwellings. So the Sabbath technically is, is Friday night going into Saturday. For the nation of Israel, it would start on Friday night as the sun goes down until the sun goes down on Saturday. And that's still the case in the, the nation of Israel. And that's the, the sixth day that, that God gives, or the seventh day, excuse me. Six days you shall work, and that's the seventh day, which is Saturday. And then Sunday, for the nation of Israel, is like our Monday, and is the first day of the week. And again, we're not held to the Sabbath in, okay, this is requirement that God's giving us to earn or deserve salvation, but is there a truth that is here? Absolutely. First, that Jesus is the fulfillment of our rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and you will find, find rest. Our rest is found in Jesus and his finished work for us on the cross. You can cease from your work and still not be resting in Christ. The ultimate rest that you're longing for is found in Christ. Having said that, I still think it's God's heart for you to take one day a week where you stop working. I don't know about you, but if you stop work and you rest, there's a restorative work that the Lord does in our hearts and our minds. I suggest to you, you will be better in six days than you will be in seven. If you go seven days a week without rest, you're actually gonna be more burnt out more grumpy, more grouchy, less effective, right? God hasn't designed us to go seven days a week. And when we rest, it's a practical way to stop and breathe and go, you're God, you're the provider. I'm not the center of the universe. The world doesn't need me as much as I think it does. The house is gonna be okay if I don't work seven days a week. The job, the office is going to be okay if I don't work uh, seven days a week. And unplug and enjoy the Lord and enjoy the people that God has put into your lives. Have you ever noticed when you get into a rhythm and a pattern of rest, you go, man, I'm finding something really good here. Or maybe you've been going, 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 and you stop and you take a break and you come back and everybody's like, you're a different person. Right? Well, what happened? You, you got a reset. You got the rest that you really needed. We're not good at this as Americans, are we? Statistically, Americans are the only country culture where we don't use all of our vacation days. Why do we do that, right? I gotta work all the time. So, somehow, I have more identity if I am working all, all, all of the time. So look at your week and go, what's your day of rest? What, what's your day that you're gonna unplug, that you're gonna enjoy the Lord, enjoy family. And it's a practice, it's, it's a discipline. We're gonna tend to go in the direction of, of overworking. As you'll see throughout these feasts, rest is an ongoing theme from God. 
God says, one day a week, I want you to rest. But then he has all of these special feasts where he's like, by the way, you don't get to work on the feasts either. <laughs> I want you to rest during, during that feast. So now the feasts in verse four. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight in, is the Lord's Passover. So this is March, April uh, time frame. The nation of Israel runs off of a, a different calendar, the month of Nisan on the 14th day. This is remembering when the children of Israel were brought out of bondage from Egypt. Slaves in Egypt for generations, God sends Moses to go back to Egypt, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? No, God gives plagues, plagues, plagues. The last plague was the death of the oldest son. Pharaoh says, okay, I've had enough. You can go. And God, when he gave that last plague, told the children of Israel, take a lamb, kill the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts and death will pass over your home. So the Israelites did that, but the Egyptians didn't and they lost their, their oldest son. That lamb that caused judgment to pass over their homes is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. When we believe in his finished work on the cross, apply it to the door of our hearts, death passes over. God didn't want the children of Israel to forget his deliverance from Egypt through this, this Passover lamb. So he wanted them to celebrate it every year. Remember deliverance. Remember what I've done in your life. And for us, the application for Passover is communion. Jesus says, do this often in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we're remembering, Jesus, you're my Passover lamb, and judgment has passed over my life because of the blood of Jesus. We're keeping the main thing the main thing. We're focused on the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. Really, the unfolding message of the Bible has to do with Jesus being the lamb of God for our sins. All of these lambs being, being sacrificed to where when Jesus walks there in Galilee and John the Baptist points out that he's the Messiah, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Christ is the fulfillment of this. And a practical application is remember specifically how the Lord has delivered you. We don't want to ever forget how God has delivered us out of sin. One of the powerful thing in your life is your testimony, how you got saved, how the Lord brought you out of Egypt, how you brought you out of, of bondage. You're, you're forgiven. And that's all wrapped up in the, the Passover. The Passover leads right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the 15th day of the same month, so the very next day, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have holy convocation. You shall have no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. So during these seven days is no customary work. And this, to me, gives us insight on Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is not necessarily just always binging out on Netflix all day long. Okay, I got my, my Sabbath rest. But maybe doing some work that's not your customary work, for instance. So I do this for a living. This is what God uses to support the family. So I'm not gonna do that today. But man, I'm gonna go work out in the yard and enjoy mowing the lawn because that's not my normal customary work, but I'm doing it in an attitude of rest. As you guys know, I have a hobby truck, a 1978 Chevy Cane 10. Have you heard of its glory, right? So I'm a terrible mechanic. I know very little about cars, but when I go work on my truck, it's restorative to me in nature because it's not my customary work. It's completely different than what I do all day long, right? I don't work with my hands on a normal basis, so it's restful for me most of the time to go out and try to do something with my hands on that, that old truck. So, so try that. Next time you're resting, do no customary work. So you're a graphics designer. Sorry, you don't get to do that on Sabbath rest. You're an accountant. Sorry, no crushing numbers on 
Sabbath rest. You're a carpenter? All right, no carpentry on your, your, your Sabbath rest. You do some work that is not customary work. So that was part of this seven days. Also, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they could not have any bread with leaven in it for those seven days. They would sweep their house, make sure that it was squeaky clean of leaven, and it's a picture of God purifying us. Leaven's always a picture of sin. Yeast is a picture of sin. So the idea is no sin in my life. As you're not eating leavened for those seven days, not having any leavened in the house, you were to pray through what what sin is in my life. How does this point to Jesus? Well, Jesus as the Passover lamb then cleanses us from our sin. And he is the perfect sacrifice, the loaf, that there's no sin in him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So as we take of the cup, we remember him as the Passover lamb. As we take the bread, we remember him as the holy sacrifice broken for our sins that cleanses us. We can't be cleansed from sin unless we know Jesus as the Passover lamb. But as we know him as the Passover lamb, then he comes and purifies our lives. We get to the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priests. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to accept on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So day after Sabbath is Sunday. So they would always celebrate the first, the feast of first fruits on Sunday. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a, a lamb, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with it, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places." So the time frame of this, again, is March, April. This is a springtime uh, feast. It would be harvest of barley. Wheat is not harvested until June or July. And so this would be the first crop, the barley crop. And they would bring the first fruits, the first of the crop to, to the Lord. This is a little bit hard for us to imagine because we don't really grow a lot of stuff. But maybe you've got a backyard garden and you get your first tomatoes. Well, that's what you'd give to the Lord. Or you get your first zucchini. Well, that's what you would give to the Lord. So they get their first barley, and they're going to give that to the Lord. How does this speak of Jesus? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. A first fruit is the first of more to come. This is the first zucchini of more to come. This is the first tomato of more to come. And, and Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and there's gonna be more to come. We're gonna rise in similar manner to Christ. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and never die again. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he had to die again. I've often wondered, was he bummed about that? You know? But when Jesus rose from the dead, he received his glorified body to never die again. And when we rise, we're gonna rise unto eternal life with a glorified body that's never going to die again. And our body, our glorified body, is gonna be like the glorified body that Jesus has. Or we see Jesus just walking through walls. Like, I, I wanna be with the disciples. They're all locked up in a room, but boom, I'm just gonna go right through. We see Jesus in his resurrected state eating a lot of food. We know there's going to be the marriage feast of the lamb. Imagine what food's going to be like in heaven. No counting calories. No counting carbs. No worried about good fat or bad fat. Just absolutely glorious, right? A body without sin, obviously. Jesus never sinned. 
in his earthly body or his glorified body, we're going to receive that uh, from the Lord. So the principle for us is offering that first fruits to the Lord. Okay, God, here's some financial resources that have come in. I want to give you the first fruits. I want to give you the, the tithes and, and the offering. Here's the first fruits of my, my time and my talents. I, I want to serve you. But Christ is the fulfillment of this as the resurrection. One thing that's interesting about this is the feast was celebrated on Sunday and Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. Mark 16 verse 9 declares that to us. We go from the feast of first fruits to Pentecost. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So you count 49 days from when you celebrated the feast of first fruits and add one day to it. Count 50 days to the days after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So this is also called the Feast of Weeks, if you ever hear it referred to as that or, or see that note in your Bible, because they're counting seven weeks plus one. In the New Testament, it's referred to as the Feast of Pentecost because in the Greek word that we translate into the English word, Penta, Pentecost is 50. So that in the Greek language, they, they would call it Pentecost. And you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits of the Lord. So this is a little bit different than the Feast of First Fruits. This time you're bringing two loaves of bread and you're offering it up to the Lord in this, this wave offering. And some have asked the question, well, why two loaves of bread? And some think that it points to the fact that on Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and we see Gentiles and Jews getting saved. Jews and Gentiles and the two loaves representing the Jews and Gentiles. And you shall offer the bread seven lambs of the first year. With the bread, seven lambs of the first year, without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering made by fire for sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall offer one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger, for I am the Lord your God. What's so cool about the Feast of Pentecost when you read the book of Acts is it was on the Feast of Pentecost that God gave the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And that's where we start to understand, could there be more going on to these feasts than we realize? This is the end of the spring feast. There's four spring feasts and then there'll be three feasts in the fall. And God is saying, this is meaningful for the children of Israel and their worship unto me, but this is also prophetic. And it's all gonna be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his person and work. And Jesus was pumped about sending the Holy Spirit. When you read the Gospel of John, he looks at the disciples and he says, guys, it's actually good for me to go away. I'm like, what? It's good for you to go away? Yeah, because I'm gonna send the helper, the comforter, the teacher, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna take you into deeper relationship with me. When Jesus was physically with the disciples, it was an external relationship with Christ. But when the Holy Spirit came inside of the disciples, it was internal. The Spirit of God living inside of us. The Spirit of God empowering us. Real change happened in Peter's life 
when he was baptized with, with the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of Pentecost. And, and Pentecost is tied to fruit, as we see here. Again, it's an it's a offering of, of fruit unto to the Lord. And when the Spirit of God comes into our life, because Christ died for our sins and rose again and has blessed us with the Spirit, then fruit really comes. We can't produce the Christian life apart from the Spirit of relying upon the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, needing that power from God. If there were ever a time in the history of the church, the time is now to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. We're living in desperate times and difficult times, and we're not going to be able to do it in our own strength. God tells us that. It's not by power or by might, but by my spirit, uh, says, says the Lord. And, and so it's very significant that God gives the Holy Spirit on Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. We get to the fifth feast, the Feast of Trumpets. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month you shall have a sabbath rest a memorial of the blowing of trumpets a holy convocation you shall do no customary work on it and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the lord this is october november time frame the seventh month and it's the blowing of the trumpets And the purpose of the blowing of the trumpets was to announce that we're coming into the Day of Atonement, a day when there would be a sacrifice for the sins for the children of Israel. Now, does the blowing of trumpet remind you of anything, especially when it comes to the work of Christ and the future work of Christ? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So many that study these seven feasts through a prophetic lens, through a prophetic viewpoint, say the first four feasts were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. And then the last three feasts will be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. When Jesus raptures the church, When he gives this trumpet, then the dead in Christ, those who have died but were in Christ, they're going to rise. And then those who are believers that are alive at that moment will rise with them and forever be with the Lord. What if the rapture happened in our time? What if the rapture happened in our generation? Maybe they would blame the rapture on COVID. (laughs) They'd be like, all those that got raptured, they, they really had COVID and the virus just made them disappear, right? We all tend to fear death a little bit, even though we're believers. It's like, I'm happy to go be with the Lord, but the process of dying is a little bit fearful and how exactly that, that's gonna take place. The Old Testament example of the rapture was Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was not in the book of Genesis. God decided to just take Enoch home without passing away. God is is able to do that. I think that's the next thing that's going to happen in the fulfillment of these feasts. We don't know when it's going to happen, but the trumpet speaks of Christ's victory over for all things. So, So listen for that trumpet. Listen for that trumpet to sound when the rapture of the church is going to take place. And then this goes into the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is the only feast that's somber. All of the rest of the feasts are rejoicing and are high-spirited, but not the Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any reason who is not afflicted, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. So the whole idea is you would afflict your soul and you would mourn over your sin. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in your dwellings. 
It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month and evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement because the Day of Atonement was this one day, once a year, where the high priest would go in and offer sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel, putting blood upon the mercy seat. And Christ has already done that for us. He's already fulfilled the Day of Atonement. So, so how does the Day of Atonement fit into Bible prophecy and future events? Well, what's a somber event that is coming in regards to the nation of Israel? It's the tribulation. It's the seven-year period of God's wrath. The Day of Atonement was all about there has to be atonement for God's wrath. And the, the tribulation is called the wrath of the Lamb. It's also called the day of Jacob's trouble, where, where God is bringing his judgment upon Israel that is Christ rejecting and also bringing his judgment upon the world. And in the midst of that seven-year tribulation period, God raises up 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel to be a testimony of the gospel to Israel. It's during that time of trouble. It's during that time of God pouring out his wrath leading up to the second coming of Christ that the nation of Israel acknowledges who Jesus is. At the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns to rule and reign, they go, Jesus, where did you get those wounds? And he says, in the house of my friends. Now, obviously, this is a bit speculative. We're able to look at the first four feasts and go, yeah, this is how these have specifically been fulfilled in Christ. And then we look through a prophetic lens and go, wow, it sure seems like the Feast of Trumpet will be fulfilled through the tribulation and the Day of Atonement will be fulfilled in a greater way through the tribulation, but, but it is something that we, we speculate. So the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacle for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord's which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything on this day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. So these are special feasts in addition to their customary worship. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days, on the first day, there shall be Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So do you see all the rest that's infused in this? What if you kind of took this as a model and said, I want to build in some springtime rest. I want to bring build in some fall rest. Maybe you're blessed with having some vacation. I'll take some vacation in the springtime. We'll take some vacation in the fall. I don't know that it necessarily has to be spring and fall, but space it out maybe over a, a six-month uh, period. God's really into his people resting. I wonder if you just took the rest from these seven feasts and calculated how many days of rest it was, plus every seventh day was supposed to be a day of rest. That's a lot of rest. We'd probably be going, like, I'm so bored, right? But I wonder what your soul would look like. I wonder what our relationships would look like, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. I've never had the opportunity to sit with someone on their deathbed and then look me in the eyes and go, I wish I would have worked more. Thankful for work, thankful to be able to provide for their families, but it's always like, man, I wish I would have spent more time with my wife and kids. I would have, wish I would have invested more in my grandkids. I, I wish I would have served more in the church or reached out to my neighbors and, and took advantage of, of loving people. 
And you shall take for yourself on the first day fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So the spirit of the feast of tabernacles is rejoicing. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You should dwell in booths or, or tents for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. So that the Feast of Tabernacles was seven-day camping trip. All the Israelites had to build these tents, and they were to celebrate God's deliverance, and God wanted to remind every generation that there was a generation that lived out in the wilderness and experienced God's uh, provision. A few weeks ago, Wyatt and I had a chance to go ice fishing for the first time on 11 Mile Reservoir with a friend. And I had no idea it's such a big deal. Like by the time we were done, you look out over 11 Mile Reservoir and there's booths all over that lake. I'm, I'm not kidding, hundreds of people on a Saturday morning out there ice fishing. Minnesota has invaded Colorado, folks. <laughs> and I've done summer fishing at 11 Mile Reservoir and there are way fewer people out there doing summer fishing than that are doing ice fishing. And, and I was blown away. I mean, just cars lined up on the dirt roads and booths set up, all, all waiting for the fish to come by your hole in this freezing cold weather, right? Well, imagine the children of Israel as you look out during the Feast of Tabernacles and it's tents everywhere. It's, it's tent city. And they're to be remembering God's faithfulness and rejoicing in the Lord and, and teaching prior generations of God's faithfulness. So how does this lead to Christ and to his future work? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates Jesus as the deliverer, and this points to his second coming for the children of Israel. Where does Jesus return when he comes back? The Mount of Olives. Where does he rule and reign from? From Jerusalem. So Christ is going to return to Israel, set up his kingdom from Israel, and have a thousand-year reign, the millennial reign. The second coming of Christ, the millennial reign, fulfilling this, this last feast. I think the Feast of Tabernacles for us has a great practical application. Do your kids, grandkids, if you have kids, your close friends, your family members, do they know God's story of deliverance in your life? I think it's easy sometimes as a kid growing up in a Christian home, you really don't know maybe the depth of your parents' depravity and the depth of God's rescuing, saving grace. But you know the depth of your own depravity and you're wondering if God can love you and what's a creative way that we can tell God's story of deliverance in our family. Could you take a camping trip and say, we're gonna orient this camping trip around God's deliverance? We, we want our kids, we want our grandkids, we want our friends, we want our, our family members to know what God has, has done. Because this is a great way to teach kids, isn't it? Every year, hey, when's the camping trip? When, when's the seven-day camping trip where we're going to remember what God is, has done for us? Well, Dad, where's the shower? Where's the microwave? You know, I'm missing all the creature comforts from home. Well, well this is what your forefathers had to go through in the wilderness and God gave manna from heaven and he gave a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And think of practical ways to try to share that story of God's faithfulness and deliverance in, in your family. Christ is the fulfillment of these feasts. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, he is our rest. He is our Sabbath rest. Are you longing for rest? Are you so wore out Sick and tired of restrictions, sick and tired of all this change, sick and tired of the political environment, just sick and tired, right? But yet life continues. Bills haven't taken a sabbatical, right? Stress hasn't 
taking a sabbatical, and tonight as we go to communion to say, Jesus, you're my rest. I'm coming to you for my Sabbath rest. Then make it practical. Say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to rest one, one day a week. He's our Passover lamb. As we celebrate communion, he is our Passover lamb that causes judgment to pass over us. He's our unleavened bread. He's the pure one that was broken for us to make us whole, to purify us from sin. Confession to him. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Is your earthly body wearing out? Is it not working as well as it used to? Good news, you've got a glorified body coming. Christ is the fulfillment of the first fruits of resurrection. Pentecost, how we need to experience Pentecost, the power of the Spirit and Jesus giving the Spirit to us, a fresh filling of the Spirit tonight. Let's look forward to the Feast of Trumpet. Let's look forward to the trumpet that Jesus is going to sound when the dead in Christ are going to rise first. He truly is going to get the last word. As much as it causes us some uncomfortability, there is a time of God's judgment for the world, a seven-year period, and the longer that the world goes on, we start to understand that judgment is needed. Amen? There's a time where God is going to hold the world accountable. He's going to hold the nations of the world accountable. Then the Feast of Tabernacles, he's going to return as the ultimate deliverer to rule and reign. So let's stand together and let's pray and let's rejoice that Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts. Jesus, we thank you for how these feasts point to you. We thank you that you are our rest. Pray that you would provide rest for our souls tonight, and we come to you for that. Thank you that you are our Passover, that your blood causes judgment to pass over. Thank you that you are our unleavened bread, that you are broken for our sin. Would, would you purify us and change us in a way that we can't? You're the one who, who sanctifies us. We look forward to rising again the way that you have risen. Pentecost and the power of the Spirit. Father, how we need a fresh filling of your Spirit. Not by might or by power, but by your Spirit. We look forward to Jesus when you're going to sound that trumpet. When you're going to return for your church. And we do cry for your judgment, for you to make things right. And for your return to this earth where you're going to rule and reign for a thousand years. So God, may we be refreshed this evening. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.